I'm Esther Alma. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM 103.5 in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR, Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally here in Ghana and in London. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, reimagining resistance in the era of Trump, a brand new conversation series. In part one, trumpeting untruths and women's work. The Women's March on Washington. 2.5 million women gathered globally to protest the U.S. president on his first day in office. In this era of alternative facts, how do we reimagine resistance? And part two, vetting nations. The U.S. and Ghana are both vetting nominees to run ministries and agencies of government. Chaos, incompetence and bribery is what that vetting reveals about these new governments. All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Treva B. Lindsay and Kathleen Addy. Kathleen Addy joins us from Accra in Ghana. Kathy was Afrobarometer Communications Manager for seven countries in East and West Africa. Afrobarometer is a research project that measures public attitudes on economic, political, and social matters in sub-Saharan Africa. Kathy is a communications consultant and an activist on issues of gender and good governance. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay is an associate professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies at The Ohio State University and the inaugural Equity for Women and Girls of Color Fellow at Harvard University. Dr. Lindsay joins us from the United States. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hello. Hello. 2.5 million women. They stood up, rose up, took to the streets, raised their voices in protest. One day after number 45, the U.S. President Donald Trump took office. It was the Women's March on Washington. I think it's cathartic. I think we need to stand together and really show that we don't believe in a misogynistic narcissist who's our president. Feet on the ground! Feet on the ground! Not backing down! They came from all over the United States. They stood up in Australia and in London, even as far as Antarctica. There were seasoned activists who had pounded pavements and sidewalks in pursuit of justice for years. And there were those for whom this was the very first time they had ever stepped out and joined a march, joined a protest. There were families and children and men. 
One of the march organizers was African-American seasoned activist Tamika Mallory. She explained what this march meant, that it was much more than a protest against Trump for her. She explained what it was and what it was not. It is not a parade and it is not a party. Today is an act of resistance. Now, some of you came here to protest one man. I didn't come here for that. I came here to address those of you who say you are of good conscience. To those of you who experience a feeling of being powerless, disparaged, victimized, antagonized, threatened, and abused. To those of you who for the first time felt the pain that my people have felt since they were brought here with chains shackled on our legs. Today I say to you, welcome to my world. Welcome to our world. Iconic activist and professor Angela Davis held a conversation called Hope and Resistance with scholar and writer Melissa Harris-Perry. She reminded us that we are in a moment of living history, that history is not some distant past, but what we are in right now. In the U.S. election, 53% of white American women voted for Trump and helped secure his place as number 45. Angela Davis reminded us that electoral politics is one part of our politics. Equally crucial was the movement work to change hearts and minds. Take a listen. Now this, this, this cloud of white supremacy has enveloped us, but it was because of the fact, I think, that we failed to recognize that electoral politics are not the only way we can express our politics. And that we need to begin to do build movements. Uh, and you know, hopefully, that's why I think the march was important. We're all shaped by our histories, whether we acknowledge it or not. And history is also about the future. It's not just about the past. We usually think about history as something that happened a long time ago. It's what's happening right now. Uh, the present is always going to be the past in a few minutes. February is Black History Month in America. March organizer Tamika Mallory reminded a nation that black and brown bodies and labor built America's economy and nation. She told the thousands gathered and the millions watching that women and men in partnership, in solidarity, can make change. Listen. I stand here as a black woman, the descendant of slaves. My ancestors literally nursed our slave masters. Through the blood and tears of my people, we built this country. America cannot be great without me, you, and all of us who are here today. Today you may be feeling aggrieved, but know that this country has been hostile to its people for a long time. For some of you it is new. For some of us it is not so new at all. Today I am marching for black and brown lives. For Sandra Bland. For Philando Castile. For Tamir Rice, for Ayanna Stanley Jones, for Eric Garner, for Michael Brown, for Trayvon Martin, and for those nine people who were shot at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. 
chance, brothers and sisters, to get this thing right. We can do it. If women rise up and take this nation back. The US president has banned Muslims from seven countries, including three African countries, Somalia, Sudan, and Libya. The ban has caused chaos at airports, devastated families, and is wreaking havoc across the nations. In this unbrave, fear-filled new world of number 45, let's talk reimagining resistance in the era of Trump. Dr. Teresa B. Lindsay, let me start with you. I think resistance, one, takes its cue from the resistance that has been building from this long history of freedom struggles, be that Black freedom struggles here in the U.S., obviously Black freedom struggles in Africa, in the Caribbean, and throughout the world. I think we take notes from freedom struggles in Latin America. I think we really have to, in this moment, listen to, learn from, and engage folks who have been on the front lines of these struggles for generations. I think what happened with the Women's March, a lot of the conflict that arrived, a lot of the contention that came, sprouted from people not really checking their history. You hear people saying, this is the first time I'm ashamed to be an American. This is the first time that I'm really questioning these things that we've been told about American principles of democracy. Whereas you have people on the margins who've been screaming this, advocating and pushing America to its better self. So I think resistance is looking at the history of the group of women who tried to save America from itself, black women, who voted 94% against what we knew would happen if we had neo-fascism in the White House. And so I think some of this will be about listening and then building civil and uncivil disobedience with regards to what we see happening. So it is making life inconvenient. It is us being ungovernable. It is us taking to the airport, getting lawyers, getting doctors, getting professionals in all of these different fields to use their skills to combat this dictatorship that we see arising. It means that we have to say, if we don't get no justice, there will be no peace. And I think that's something that for the first time we might have, first time in a long time, I should say, have a broad coalition of people willing to listen for the first time to folks on the margins of the margins who've been pushing us towards a resistance that isn't about being nice, that isn't about being in the space of compromise, but really saying, let us finally be the better selves so many of us thought we were before this moment. Kathleen Addy, your thoughts? We certainly live in um, interesting times. The world is changing. Communication is making everything more transparent and everything resonates everywhere at the same time in, in, in real time. And so that is an important dynamic that informs the way we would do resistance moving forward. Because, you see, it used to take time for something that happened on the other side of the world to have an impact on your life wherever you are in the world. But the world is different now. So whatever happens on the other side, almost immediately is affecting everyone else on the other side. So Trump gets elected. I mean, we watched the whole thing unfold like a movie, and we kept thinking, this cannot happen. This is the U.S. It cannot happen. This is the place of the of the civil rights struggle. They cannot elect Mr. Trump as well, but we, we watched it unfold, and it happened right in our faces. And the passion with which those who voted for him, voted for him, 
spoke to me that there's a certain underbelly of the beast that we have not seen in a while, that we have not examined in a while, that has been sitting there and festering while we went about our business back him, everything was, was, was normal. I think that it's going to get more complicated, but it's also going to get easier because today when something happens in one side of the world and there's a need to raise voices, the voices get raised across the world almost immediately by everyone. So this Women's March is an example of that. I mean, of course, whatever happens in the U.S. has implications or tends to have implications for people around the world. But with this match, it, it's almost like a, 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 a U.S. problem, and the response to it was in solidarity with the women of the U.S., who in the past have had to rise in solidarity with women from other parts of the world. So it was interesting for me in that way that it was solidarity with the women of the U.S. for an issue that in other parts of the world did not immediately affect them. So for me, it's interesting that we, I'm saying that the way that we are going to be doing resistance as time goes on is to work in more collaborative ways. So for instance, those who marched across the world, some did it spontaneously without any actual connection with those who organized the marches in the U.S. The front line, as far as Trump policies are concerned, I think that in the future there must be greater or now, there must be, as we move on, there must be greater collaboration among groups of people across the world who are oppressed, who feel that new policies coming on will work against them. One of the things that have always fascinated me is the fact that when it comes to the great religions of the world disagree on so many things and have been the source of so much conflict. The one thing they agree on, though, is that they must have control over a woman's body. So... All the Abrahamic religions, uh, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, they have rules about what a woman's body should be used for. And most of the time, those rules do not include um, the voice of the woman who owns the body, you know. So I see a reinforcement of that, even though because of the Muslim ban, as far as Trump policies are concerned, that is not coming through too strongly. What's interesting for me is the point that you made, the two points that you made, Triva, the idea of uncivil resistance and uncivil disobedience and the importance of that in this particular moment. That's the first part. And your point, Kathleen Addy, around all the religions kind of agree that they should have control over a woman's body. And so with Trump ensconced as number 45, this kind of amassing of peoples led by women that is about saying women's rights become human rights. I feel like for the first time, the practical necessity of intersectionality is finally understood on the ground. Because I am stunned by, you know, it's it's always interesting to me when people come out to march for the first time. And I think, so where have people been when black women were dying? Where were people when black women were being raped? And so part of it is a reminder of the ways in which there is a sleepwalking through the lived trauma and the living trauma of an entire set of people. And then there's something about number 45 that galvanizes the world in a particular way, because really we are in the living era of fascism. And I think, as you point out, Kathleen Addy, social media and our communications landscape 
enables us to experience one another's resistance in ways that we have not been able to do historically, but also to recognize the um, oppression and link it, not just ideologically or through social justice, but emotionally via communication. And so there's ways that the U.S. has always impacted the world, as you said, Kathleen, but now those ways are exacerbated tenfold. But I wanted to ask you, Treva, to speak a bit more about what you mean by a resistance that is uncivil and what that needs to look like. I think what we're seeing in these very disruptive tactics, I mean, we saw some of this in Black Lives Matter. We saw some of this in response to the Fees of the Fall movement in South Africa. We're seeing this in resistance in Brazil to police brutality and the rise of a very far-right government there as well. So this is not new in terms of how we make life uncomfortable for those who are seeking to make our lives unlivable. And so for me, when people are inconvenienced at the airport, when we're talking about a family in Detroit where the mother just died on her way back to get life-saving treatment, we're talking about a space in which we have to make airports uncomfortable because it is uncomfortable for our brothers and sisters. I think when you said intersectional, it's so important that we're seeing how those politics can play out on the ground. I've almost been surprised by the number of people who've come out for this no Muslim ban, no ban, no wall protest to see the range of people who are finally making the connection that that which is done unto those on the margins, I know in religious terms, that is one done unto the least, is done unto the rest of us, right? That kind of framing, but to see that mobilized politically. So that means we all should be uncomfortable at airports until we have new policies that are legal, number one, but that also account for the ways in which no human being is ever illegal. So That's one part of this. It means for reproductive rights, which, of course, what happens here obviously has an impact on the globe because we can look at right now Trump signing the global gag rule again, which basically prevents federal dollars from going to family planning clinics around the world if they provide abortions, which, although that funding never goes to abortions, is an easy thing to get the right mobilized around in terms of withdrawing funding. So this also means we need to go back to pre-Roe v. Wade tactics in order to bring attention to this bringing back what it means to tell our stories of back alley abortions, what it means to tell stories of coat hangers and other objects used for people dying to control their own bodies. That is a connection that we all have in this struggle and that has been made clear through the policies of such things as the global gag rule. And of course, in this moment, the SCOTUS nominee that has been forwarded is certainly another anti-choice person. So some of this will be fought in these kinds of acts of civil disobedience, which means we are going to bombard these congressmen, these politicians, holding them accountable. Social media provides an excellent platform for doing a checks and balances of the politicians who are supporting these progressive agendas and those who are compromising or conceding defeat. So we need to be on their phone lines. We need to be in their offices. We need to go to their homes. This needs to look like disruption 24-7 because we are saying that the policies, the legislation, the bills that Trump, his administration, and the GOP-controlled Congress are trying to pass make our lives unlivable. And it is so important to position our fight on those terms, that you have to be uncomfortable because what you're doing is inhumane. Discomfort 
is a false equivalency to inhumanity. And what we're seeing in the politics playing out is the rise of inhumanity. So then we have to make ourselves ungovernable. We have to be willing to go to jail. We have to be willing to fund the things that we think are important. We have to be willing to support new candidates with new ideas. We have to be ready to hold accountable every politician who supports any of these nominees who would make our lives more unlivable. It's so powerful when you say that we have to make those who support and pass these policies uncomfortable since they're making so many of our lives unlivable. And I want to just talk about that communications piece, Kathleen, that you mentioned, the idea of, and you mentioned Trevor as well, the idea of being able through social media, one, to track clearly, not the alternative facts that are the world of Kellyanne Conway and Number 45's administration, but the reality of what the policies mean, what has happened because of the speed at which this is really going down. But then it also makes me think about Sean Spicer. And having a press secretary in the White House who is perpetuating untruths and delivering them as if they're actual facts. So Kathleen Addy, as communications experts, dealing with an administration that is willing to, you know, lie clearly, unapologetically on the podium, requiring a kind of a different kind of tactic from the world of communications from the world of journalism. How do you see that? Oh, certainly. Accepted means of engagement with policymakers through their spokespersons will certainly have to change. I think that a certain generation has grown up taking for granted that governments will be there to serve the interests of the people. And so have grown very comfortable, have not been too questioning, you know, in the recent past, about what really goes on in the world of government and governance. But I think that is going to change and change real quickly because of what 45 is doing to the world right now. In a way, it's a wake-up call that needed to happen because a lot of people had gone to sleep, especially when you live in a place where systems run, where generally speaking, when you get to the bus stop, the bus is there. When you join a queue, you, you, you can buy what you need. When, you know, societies are set up in such a way that things run a bit smoothly. And so people, there's a big disconnect between people's daily lives and what happens at the level of government. And I think that what 45 and his team, including Spicer, are doing serves as a wake-up call because all of a sudden people are making the important connection between what happens at the level of governance and their very lives. And the fact that you can have access to a certain kind of medication, a certain kind of medical service, you know, and and how those things are directly connected to what happens in Washington, D.C. So I think that, of course, the communication must be different. The engagement with this class of government must be completely different. And the only thing that I think would impact and resonate and make a difference with this lot is numbers. So it's our ability to mobilize and speak with one voice on the issues that affect us most, the ability to pull everybody, shake everybody out of the slumber and the stupor and just wake everybody up to their responsibilities in terms of joining voices to get a bigger, because it is only a bigger voice that can knock this thing down, only a bigger. So in a way, I agree with Trevor, my co-panelist said, that 
we have to make them uncomfortable. We have to make them uncomfortable for making our lives unlivable. I totally agree with that. Let's talk about two things, numbers and health. We know that number 45 is literally obsessed with numbers, be they the made-up numbers on the inauguration, the made-up numbers when it comes to the popular vote versus the electoral vote, the made-up numbers of those who've actually been impacted by the Muslim ban versus those who are actually being impacted. But that obsession with numbers kind of keeps popping up via his 140-character missives that are frankly almost passing as policy at this point. So I want to speak about those government numbers then versus numbers when it comes to resistance. And by numbers, I mean all the different possible intersections that we're seeing. We saw one story about a Jew and a Muslim coming together on the issue of the ban. And there was concern and discussion about what that kind of intersection means. But I think of what I call unlikely intersections because of the sheer numbers of people that are being fired upon and attacked by number 45's administration. And because Trump is a businessman who really looks at the U.S. government, I say, as a family business. So the idea of government having a responsibility to think about the lived reality of people's daily lives, that piece of it has been abandoned. It's been left by the post. And so these unlikely intersections are now appearing as part of our resistance. And I wonder how you both feel about those kind of unlikely intersections and how they serve us reimagining resistance. That's the first point. And then the second point is about this idea of health. Kathy, you mentioned health and people's access to health, but I'm also thinking about our emotional health in the work of resistance. Trevor, you spoke about this being a long history. This is part of what has been a long history. But part of what I think is that this era of Trump is unknown because of the history-making precedent of Barack Obama. What follows it is unknown, unheard, unseen in these times, but belongs to a part of um, history that people thought was left behind to some extent. And so the speed at which number 45 delivers these hurtful, harmful policies takes its particular toll also on our emotional health. and. When we're reimagining resistance, what does that mean to think about our emotional health and the, the sheer toll of what it means to be in a much more fear-filled world where it really is about who is the next target in these policies that are bizarre, crazy, dangerous, and they keep coming? I'll start with the latter and then go back to the former, but I think they're connected, quite honestly. I think one of the beautiful things about being involved in the movement for Black Lives is seeing not only the times at which we're building and advocating and struggling and fighting, but it's also the communities that were built within that, that we had healers, we had people who were counselors, we had people and have people as part of this who care about the health and well-being of those in the struggle, in the battle. Part of building in this new moment of this movement towards justice and bending towards justice and progress will be also using these spaces that we're creating to be about health and well-being for ourselves because part of the plan, and this sounds very conspiracy theorist, but there's actually a lot of political science <laughs> behind this, is to see this onslaught of all of these things that are just seem like an attack, 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 put us in this constant response and reactive mode of fear, of anger, of confusion, of disarray. And that does something physically. There are bodily outcomes 
for being in a space of constantly being like that, which also can certain ways delegitimize the political organizing and mobilizing we're attempting to do, which doesn't mean we don't have a right to be and should use emotion moving forward, but also we have to learn what healthy expressions of this look like and how we build a community that is both about self and other care as we're fighting through these things, which means to the former question you asked, the first question you asked, that these unlikely partnerships, coalitions, solidarity moves that are here is as much about fighting back against what we're seeing, but also building these bridges in substantive ways, not just symbolically, but really having these difficult conversations that we need to have about difference. This is not a moment where we put difference aside. It's a moment where we recognize in this big scheme of neo-fascism where everybody is located and how we support one another in our particular locations against that, which means our vulnerabilities look different, our power looks different, our privilege looks different. So we have to be really honest about that and ask each other, how do we support one another? It is our duty to love and protect one another in this moment, too. And so love means holding one accountable as much as it means these warm and fuzzy things that people like to say when we say, we have to love everybody. Well, yes, we do. That means holding accountable. And there is no love without justice. And that means justice in the big sense of fighting against neo-fascism, but it also means justice in terms of being self-aware, self-reflexive about the ways in which power, privilege, vulnerability, and marginalization impact how we move in this moment, too, and to not be worn down. We're allowed to breathe. We're allowed to take a moment and step back with the millions that we have that are now invested in protesting and engaging against Trump, against fascism, against racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, homophobia, whatever kind of bigotry we're talking about. We got bodies. <laughs> For the first time in a long time, I feel like we actually have bodies, which provide space that some of us can take a step back, come back in, that we have to know that the burnout is also part of their plan. So in order to sustain ourselves, we must also create space for us to take moments. This is really interesting to me, Treva, because I think about love with accountability, which is this beautiful idea that Aisha Shahida Simmons talks about. She talks about it specifically in connection with sexual violence. I'm also thinking about it in terms of the aftermath of the election and dealing with what does love with accountability look like when you're dealing with these numbers again, these 53% of white American women who voted for the thing that we saw 2.5 million women all over the world gather to protest. What does love with accountability look like in dealing with those kinds of numbers and what Melissa Harris Perry spoke about, which is that when it comes to our electoral politics, it is not women who deal with the Democrats. It's black women who vote for the Democrats. But historically, white women have often and traditionally historically voted for the Republicans. So when I think about unlikely coalitions, I also mean white liberal progressive women dealing with their white Republican sisters and sisterin about how their votes jeopardize entire other peoples and what that work would look like and how black women who much more profoundly understand intersectionality because of the lived experience that we have 
how they support that particular work, but not just support it, but actually require it. Because I think one of the things that I saw with the Women's March on Washington, listening and watching Voices of the March, uh, was this concern that people talked about, this is about kindness and compassion and love. And I thought, it's not about love in the way that you define it. Because accountability does mean saying, if 53% can vote for this man, you voted against your sisters. You voted against their body's interests, their better interests, their children's interests, and their future. And so what does that look like for you? A lot of drinks. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I have really sat with this, what it means to hold white women accountable for that 53%. I mean, that number is going to stick with us for a very long time in terms of thinking about what happened with this election, who are these women. I know the days, in the days immediately after the election, I had this kind of skeptical kind of look on my face anytime I encountered someone because I'm just like, did you vote for him? Did you vote for this to happen? Why did you vote for this to happen? This is absurd. But I had to really take a step back from that and not to say I still don't have a certain ire and a certain frustration, but the record does show, as Melissa Harris-Perry points out, that white women's allegiance to white supremacy has always been a part of the historical record. And given that, we have to think about both the benefits of whiteness in this moment, the protection that white patriarchy and supremacy affords white women, and what kinds of unlearning white women in this movement will have to do as part of their work to truly move from a white liberal standpoint to a progressive anti-racist standpoint. This movement doesn't work within the confines of liberalism, which I think is part of the challenge right now of really forming radical solidarity, that we're still talking about liberalism. And in fact, we're talking often about neoliberalism, which still has its foot on the neck of black, brown, indigenous people, queer folks, trans folks. So white women have to recognize their complicity in that and unlearn liberalism as the savior or the antidote to patriarchy and gender subordination and think about what an anti-racist progressive paradigm actually gets us towards, which means listening to women of color, citing women and trans folks of color, and also engaging in the unlearning practice of white liberalism as the end-all be-all. That getting in the room or lean-in feminism or whatever you want to call it, it's still a system entrenched in oppression of other people. And you can't have the eradication of gender oppression or sexual oppression if you are still oppressing people of color. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. That's the important lesson. Closing thought to you, Kathleen Addy. We have to remember that there's an intersection between racism and class. And um, sometimes you tend to forget that link, that racism by its very nature means that there's an inbuilt classism in it. So that amongst women, there is a hierarchy of women. And of course, the darker-skinned women end up at the bottom of that pyramid. When something like a 45 happens, a Trump happens, 
And all of a sudden, those who were privileged now come under threat. It's an opportunity that we must not miss to help them see the big picture, to help them see the pain and oppression of others, and to connect that to what they are feeling now and think about how others have been feeling this for years, for generations. As Tamika Mallory said, welcome to our world. Resist, rise up, speak out, can't stop now. Things that's held us down But now it looks like things are finally coming around I know we've got a long, long way to go And where we'll end up, I don't know But we won't let nothing hold us back We're putting our show together We're polishing up our act And if you feel like I've been held down before I know That was part one of the SPIN's series, Reimagining Resistance in the Era of Trump. You're listening to The SPIN, a one-hour weekly international all-women of colour podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Dr. Treva B. Lindsay and Kathleen Addy. The SPIN is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM 103.5 studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona. Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and we are now on air in London on ABN UK Radio. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes. And if you're trying to make it, they only push you aside. They really don't have nowhere to go. Ask them where they're going. They don't know. Reimagining resistance means we all better think. Think more carefully about what number 45 is trying to do to we. Just stop. I ain't no psychiatrist, I 
for the second main event conversation, vetting nations. The US and Ghana both have new presidents. In Ghana, we have had the inauguration of President Nana Akufo-Addo. And of course, in the US, we have had the inauguration of number 45. Both men spoke of ushering profound change into their countries. In America, that change is provoking chaos, protest and outrage. In Ghana, there's a mood of optimism and hope. President Akufo-Addo invited Ghanaians to reimagine the work of service and citizenship. Listen. We have an exuberant and young growing population that wants the best of what the world has to offer and will not settle for third world or developing world standards. Kofi Abrefa Busia, Prime Minister of the Progress Party Government of the Second Republic and one of the great Ghanaians, said in these eloquent words, and I quote, we regard politics as an avenue of service to our fellow men. We hold that political power is to be exercised to make life nobler and happier. Our success or failure should be judged by the quality of the individual, by his knowledge, by his skills, by his behavior as a member of society, the standard of living he's able to enjoy, and by the degree of harmony and brotherliness in our community life as a nation." Unquote. As the new Ghanaian president spoke of hope and change, the US president would speak of tombstones and gangs and drugs and walls and crime. And then the vetting of ministers began. In the US, it quickly became clear that number 45's nominees had billionaire status in common, but often little competence in the areas for which they were being nominated. One example, the Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren established DeVos had absolutely no experience in public education, but her family had donated millions to the GOP. Listen. I'd like to ask you about your qualifications for leading the nation on higher education. The Department of Education is in charge of making sure that the $150 billion that we invest in students each year gets into the right hands and that students have the support they need to be able to pay back their student loans. The Secretary of Education is essentially responsible for managing a trillion dollar student loan bank and distributing $30 billion in Pell Grants to students each year. The financial futures of an entire generation of young people depend on your department getting that right. Now, Mrs. DeVos, do you have any direct experience in running a bank? Senator, I do not. Uh-huh. Do you have you ever managed or overseen a trillion dollar loan program? I have not. How about a billion-dollar loan program? I have not. Okay, so no experience in managing a program like this. How about participating in one? I think it's important for the person who is in charge of our financial aid programs to understand what it's like for students and their families who are struggling to pay for college. Mrs. DeVos, have you ever taken out a student loan from the federal government to help pay for college? I have not. Uh, have any of your children had to borrow money in order to go to college? They have been fortunate not to. Uh-huh. Have you had any personal experience with the Pell Grant? Uh, not personal experience, but certainly friends and um, students with whom I've worked. So you have, have no personal experience with college financial aid or management of higher education. There were others. 
Ben Carson, a neurosurgeon who had contested to become the GOP presidential nominee, was nominated by Trump to lead the Department of Housing and Urban Development, known as HUD. It is an area in which Trump's family has considerable business interests, but Carson has absolutely no experience. In Ghana, the vetting process has come under scrutiny too. Here it's the caliber of vetting questions being challenged. And in the most recent vetting of the Minister for Gender, Children and Social Protection, Otiko Jaba, questions of gender loyalty were raised after a 2016 incident in which Jaba attacked the Electoral Commission's first woman chair, Charlotte Osei. She called for an investigation into allegations, unsubstantiated allegations, that Mrs. Osei had used sex to get her job. After the vetting comes the voting. Approved or not? In the US, the Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, with no actual experience in the world of public education, has just been approved. She scraped by the Senate committee with 12 votes to 11. A final formal vote will now be held. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren criticized the vote. She said of DeVos and the vote, I quote, it's hard to imagine a candidate less qualified or more dangerous to be entrusted both with our country's education policy. And in Ghana, bribery allegations have been made by a minority committee member of the chair of the vetting committee. The alleged bribe was to approve the minister-designate for trade and industry. And that bribery allegation is currently affecting our vetting process. So let's talk vetting nations and what these processes reveal about the administrations in the U.S. and Ghana. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay, let me start with you. Your thoughts. Watching this unfold has been, it would be laughable were this not real life in the U.S. I think as of today, without any of the Senate Dems present, they just approved the Secretary of Treasury and Health Services. So there's a way that this vetting is very incomplete. And it seems that Trump has invested in picking nominees who are woefully under or unqualified for the positions. It seems as though that is an administrative-wide policy. Are you unqualified? Welcome to the nomination. I mean, the first truly qualified person we've seen, as much as I'm opposing his confirmation, would be the judge who was just nominated for the SCOTUS, although I vehemently oppose filling Judge Scalia's vacant seat. I do believe that he is actually qualified. He has been a judge. It is sad that that is one of few people who's been nominated by him that passes even a basic test of qualification for the position. Mind you, we can also make the argument that the person sitting in the Oval Office right now is woefully unqualified to be in that position Hmm. as well. And so at least the administration is consistent on that front. I think the vetting process is revealing so many of the fractures that are present right now, what it means to have a GOP-controlled Congress presidency, and most likely a SCOTUS that leans heavily to the right, that all three branches of government are dominated by an increasingly far-right-leaning political agenda. And that is not what democracy looks like. That is not what more than 62 million people voted for when we look at the popular vote to see that obviously there are a number of people who voted against this. There's a 3 million vote gap between Clinton and Trump. But 
even given our democratic system that did place him in that office, it is hard to tell that this vetting process is a reflection of something that is truly democratic and something that is truly invested in the will of the people. You cannot have someone who has never thought about public housing in a critical and an engaged way be the director of HUD. You cannot have someone who has never thought about education beyond donating and gutting the budget and core deliverables for public schools to be the director or the secretary of education. You cannot have someone being the head of the Department of Energy who didn't even know that the Department of Energy actually deals with the nuclear arsenal of the United States and thought it was about oil. This is what we're dealing with. And looking abroad at how these vetting processes are happening and looking at somewhere like Ghana where the sense of optimism that came in with this administration that may, in fact, in this moment be tempered somewhat by the kind of questioning that's happening for the Minister of Gender and Position, you know, there is something that is brewing in this. How do we contest power? How do we contest bigotry? How do we contest this when their checks and balances system are biased? and have their own political agendas as well, and that infiltrates any semblance of democracy that we thought we may have. Indeed. Since when was incompetence the most valid qualification to lead these major ministries and agencies of government? And it's something that here in Ghana is a consistent argument that competence should not be the aspiration, it should be a minimal requirement. And the U.S. being a place that so many other nations look to and aspire to reflect in certain ways, it is particularly fascinating watching this process that really does. It reminds me of the way the ogre of the family, the head honcho, the dude, just picks his family members and puts them in positions of power to secure the empire and never mind whether or not they actually have anything that it takes to run those particular spaces. But the number one the number one quality is loyalty. So it kind of feels like a mafioso family, like the mafia. It really, really does. Kathleen Addy, your thoughts? I think that the other thing we should not forget is that the way fascism works is exactly like this. The way a dictator works is exactly like this. It's to appoint people who don't quite measure up so that their loyalty will only be to the top. You know, because if you know that you are appointed for a position for which you know very well you are not qualified, then of course you be you are beholden to the appointing authority, and this is something that used to be fairly commonplace in countries that are headed by dictators and third world countries and military governments and all of that. And it's really is it fascinating to see this roll out in the U.S. right now. And I think that part of it is a result of the citizens taking government for granted and going to sleep, essentially, and assuming that um, government will work for your interest. I think that a lot of that has happened in the past. We've just taken it for granted that they will do what they are supposed to do. And so it's important that we, we grab this wake-up call. It's important that we take advantage of everything that is happening now to change things that we need for governments to understand that they are there to serve. We must start talking about the social contract again. We must go back to basics about what a democracy is and what it's supposed to do. 
we must tell people and people have to understand that if you don't vote or if you vote with a particular intent, you're going to have this outcome. And this outcome that you're going to have has a direct impact on your life on a daily basis, even if you live in the U.S. as a U.S. citizen. And I think that there's an education deficit in all of these things because, again, we've taken it for granted that the democracy that is set and has been running will continue to run as a democracy. Here we are, I think the U.S. is morphing into some kind of quasi-dictatorship, and it's only because the citizens have taken a lot for granted and have not understood their power to be able to effect the changes that they want for their lives. I think that there's an education deficit. I think that we must go back to the basics about what a democracy is and how it works and how it takes the participation of citizens for the democracy to work properly. We must go back to talking about the social contracts, why we elect government, what we elect them to do, what is their responsibility towards us. We have a problem in third world countries where we have citizens who come, you know, because of dictatorships, military governments, are quite disconnected from democracy and its basic tenets. We can't forgive them for that, but we cannot forgive Americans for not knowing that they have a responsibility to themselves and therefore to the rest of us to be able to manage their democracy in a way that makes it attractive for others to do. Because love it or hate it, the U.S. has played a policeman's role in the world, and that role has actually saved a lot of lives. Well, there's an argument that it has lost a lot of lives which is true, but it has saved a lot of lives as well because there are several situations in dictator-run countries where the only voice of reason that a dictator and a cabal will listen to is the donor. So if, you know, <laughs> the donor is behaving so badly as well, it actually, in a way, empowers bad governments around the world to continue to oppress their people, and it's just wrong. So I think that we must go back to basics about what it is that a democracy is and how it's supposed to be run, and each individual living within that um, political entity's role in ensuring that the democracy is entrenched and is run to the benefit of the majority of the people. I'm reminded that rights are never assured, that whatever rights have been fought for, that have been acquired, that have been won by the sweat of organizing and protesting and marching and voting, those rights have to be protected every single time, every single time around. And so, you know, I think for folks who think that voting doesn't matter, the manifestation that it does, we're living in that space right now. And because so much of what Trump's election represented was around the issue of gender, because certainly in comparing it to Ghana, where we've seen our particular minister for gender, Otiko Jabba, come under fire, because during her vetting process, she was confronted with a statement that she made about another powerful woman in office, the Electoral Commission's first woman chair, Charlotte Osei, um, who was accused of getting her job because she had sex. And that sex for jobs accusation is a crazy common one made against women in power and is one of the hardest things to refute. How do you refute that that didn't happen? And what Mrs. Jabba had done was call for an investigation into the allegation. Now, at the time, she was the national organizer for women in the NPP, the opposition party that is now in government. What was so dangerous about that was this question that if you are willing to sell out another woman in power, how can you be trusted not to sell out the ministry, which is about 
vulnerable women. And women in power are always vulnerable to the ways in which patriarchy and politics can use them. So how can you be trusted to protect your sisters when you're willing to do that? And I think the same question applies when we think about electoral politics, when we think about organizing, and when we think about dealing with those women who voted outside of their own health, their own best interests. How do you then trust those folks to come back into the fold and do what's right and what's best, not just for them and for their bodies, but for the families that they are part of? We're really talking about the dismantling of patriarchy in ways that stay and stand as opposed to these small, tiny chunks where both women and men go back in service to that very same patriarchy. Uh, this world of politics, let Ghanaian hip-life artist Sakodie tell it his way. Now, Emma, since president, post. Ghana for your here with that's your hour. Thank you to Kathleen Addy and Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. I want to hear myself. Yeah. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is Reimagining Resistance in the Era of Trump. The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.